We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 193 for July 15th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about a common concept in cultural resource management, recording resources to a good faith effort standard. What does that mean? So bust out your favorite Tom King book because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Hello. Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. And I forgot to mention Bill's in Northern California because we also have Heather in Southern California. Or Central California. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Or I guess Central. Yeah, whatever. Everything south of San Francisco is Southern California to me. Well, then there's the Sierras. There's like five Californias and the Mojave. I don't know how many Californias there are. I'm All right. just going <laughs> to say Southern California is my home. So, uh, Okay. Okay. And then Stephen in Calgary. Hello. And I'm actually not in Nevada. I never say where I'm at because I never leave, but I'm not in Nevada anymore. Uh, and I'm probably going to be in a different place almost every time we record for the next little while. But I'm in Oregon. I'm on the Oregon coast in Florence, Oregon. So that's where I am at right now. Okay. So... This week, we've got somewhat of a, uh, a random topic from our topic pool. We, we sometimes just write stuff down and we keep it on this uh, service called Trello. And we pull some of these ideas up and they're just concepts that we've had discussed in other areas or ideas we had or thoughts we've had. And that's going to be one of these episodes today. So Heather was perusing the list and pulled out one that we just wrote good faith effort on. And we'll start with that. So this was in response to a conversation that was being had on one of our Slack teams by one of our Slack members. And I'll just point out that as a as as of July, we're recording this in July of 2020. So something could have changed two years from now if you're listening to this in the future. But we recently, and by recently I mean in the last couple of weeks, took down all our membership tiers. We had three different membership tiers. We took them all down and now we have one membership tier that I think is like $7.99 a month or something like that. You can get an annual for I don't know, something like $60 a year or something. That's just enough to, to help us keep these things going. But one of the things that includes is our members only Slack team. And Slack is a sort of a team communication device like Discord or something like that. But Slack is a, a great place to have a conversation with the hosts, have a conversation with other members and uh, uh, and basically just keep the conversation going from the podcast or start a new one. It doesn't matter. So so Slack is where we got this idea. And if you want to join, head on over to arcpodnet.com and look for the members area and join and become a member today. So let's talk about good faith effort. What the heck does that mean? It, it, it's in pretty much every language that you see out there, but it's definitely in the section 106 language that you must, I don't know, record an archaeological site in, in good faith effort. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the uh, documentation in front of me. Stephen probably has it memorized, but you know, otherwise, <laughs> it's good faith effort. And, and that's what we're talking about. You have to, you have to assess the the situation at um, a historical or, or cultural resource using good faith effort methodology, right? Basically. But what does that mean? What does that mean to different people? What is a good faith effort? 
the first thing to me that comes to mind is people's tendency to write off shovel tests and a survey uh, using slope and other conditions. That has got to be documented because that is part of your good faith effort. If, if you think there's a site on the top of a really tough to get to hill or something like that, or a scree slope or something that you can't climb up, of, which, which is common in Nevada. And honestly, the use of drones would be really helpful. So we can check out uh, a flat spot up on top somewhere and really see if there's anything up there. If you can't get up there or something like that and you end up writing it off, you know, the, the whole project is under your good faith effort ideology there. But if I don't know. You've got to decide what does constitute a good faith effort for your area, for the particular sites that you're recording, how you're getting all these things done. So, Heather, since you brought up this topic, how do you how do you define this? How do you see good faith effort for your company and when you're out in the field? Well, I'm, you know, I, I think you kind of have to look at that. The term good faith effort is kind of a it's a funny term, but it is a legal term. And, you know, mm-hmm. even though we go to school and we have, you know, this passion for this discipline and we have our reasons for doing what we do. But when it comes down to it, uh, when it comes to CRM, we need to create, in the end, a defensible document to defense. We have to be able to defend our actions. And how does that why do we have to defend our, our, our actions? It's actually in a legal sense. Right. I mean, we should be able to. You know, when we when we go out and, and we we have a task, we should do the very best that we can because of our moral obligations. But also, there, there's a legal reason that we need to go and make sure that we are doing what we should be doing, and that is where good faith comes in. is actually a legal term, and I looked it up, and it says it's an abstract and co- uh, comprehensive term that encompasses a sincere belief or motive without any malice or desire to defraud others. So, wow. The one thing about, you know, legal language is that it's broad on purpose, right? So now the difficult part is, have we as a discipline been able to codify what is a good faith effort well enough? So because we're always struggling with, you know, doing the right thing out in the field, but at the same time, making sure that we're representing our, you know, our company and our clients properly. It's actually not that it's not that easy to define. And for me, I think it's looking when you go into a site, you know, I when I first started, I, I worked for a company that actually would say they don't look at slopes. They don't look at any slopes because nothing could happen there. You couldn't have any <laughs> any any sites there. Right. So right. I do believe that their intent was or the person that had kind of made that doc declaration. I don't think he had any desire to defraud others or any malice of any sort, but he certainly was closed minded. So I think that for me, when, you know, when I walk onto a site, part of going into a site and into a project with a good faith effort is to look at the site from all perspectives and to really not have, try my best not to have a bias but at the same time, bringing in the information that I have gathered over years of experience to uh, know where to look. You know, we have mm-hmm. sampling, you know, random sampling, but we also sample based on what we find. And so, you know, I think it's just one in a very broad sense would be walking into a site with you, your experience behind you, but your opened eyes in front of you. How's that for not an, a nebulous <laughs> answer? 
There you go. It's a nebulous concept, though. But yeah. Stevens brought up in our chat here a uh, a link with what looks like a um, identification standard. Stephen, you want to talk about that? Sure. Because I just basically Googled it while uh, Heather was talking. Basically, what we pulled up and we'll have in the show notes is a PDF that's put out by the ACHP, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. And it refers back to the thing I always bring up when we talk about Section 106 stuff, which is 36 CFR 800. That basically spells out the entire process, right? And and part of that is the... Uh, it's not just good faith effort that it talks about. It's reasonable and good faith effort. You know, they've got a few bullet points here. Uh, I, I think that, you know, to s- summarize it in, in my own commentary is is more along the lines of mm-hmm. um, that it's it's conducting, you know, conducting the inventory of historic uh, properties, identifying historic properties in a way that could reasonably find historic properties if if they were located within the area of potential effect. So maybe doing a windshield survey in the middle of winter when everything's covered in snow might not be the best, might, might not be considered a reasonable attempt at you know finding sites. Whereas if you go out there and you're going by whatever the local standards are for shovel testing intervals or transect intervals or um, what, whatever is considered to be the norm for uh, your particular region, time period, whatever you're working with, that could be considered a reasonable good, good faith effort. Most uh, jurisdictions, most, most states or uh, areas or regions, you can find guidelines as to what constitutes like a professional standard, or I don't, I don't want to say too much standard, but like basically like here's what we consider to be good practice in this area. Mm. And, and I mean, it's funny because you could like be on one side of a state line will be like a 10 meter interval for shovel tests. And on the other side, it's, it's a 15 meter interval, but mm-hmm. you know, each state and, um, you know, you know, agencies, public land will have some sort of guidance as to what constitutes a reasonable attempt at finding in this particular case, archeological sites, but throughout historic properties as a whole. Bill, I'm curious as to what you think about this, since you are teaching the next wave of eager young minds in these concepts. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you deal with this? And, and is this a concept that even comes up in your classes at the level that you're um, at your teaching right now? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because it doesn't actually come up. And it's definitely something that uh, needs to be addressed. I definitely agree with uh, Stephen and Heather that, you know, it's part of your own professional obligation based on your own experience and the the guideline for the uh, advisory council guidelines, because I also pulled those up too. I think that uh, like the, the key thing that's not necessarily mentioned here that's relevant for uh, CRM folks is that you know the way this thing is set up, it's supposed to be between the lead agency and the you know specific groups. They're not very clear on which groups that are supposed to be uh, consulted with and everything and which group you are actually trying to do a good faith effort towards addressing their heritage. So, you know, there, Mm -hmm. there's always a gray area. And I think I mentioned when we were announced that we were going to talk about this, when I first started doing CRM, I remember my bosses telling me that, you know, good faith effort is just, you know, we're supposed to do uh, good archeology span and do our best to try and identify historic properties, archeology span sites and buildings and stuff, if they actually exist in our project area but the whole good faith thing of communities and everything, 
was supposed to be between the lead agency and we were supposed to keep our mouths shut. And that was, you know, <laughs> like, you know, don't do anything to get us sued. Just do the project, keep your mouth shut. And your good faith involves archaeology field work and reporting what you find, not connecting with communities. You know, something I want to chime in on what you just said, though, what all of you said, I think, um, at least, Bill, you just said it. Talking about good faith effort being based on your experience and abilities, right? And, and what you've seen in archaeology sites. I mean, I think the elephant in the room that needs to be addressed too, especially for newer people that might be listening to this. We just had a, uh, if you're listening to this in real time, I mean, we just had a group of uh, people graduate with a degree in whatever that gets them into CRM archaeology. I, I feel bad that 2020 is the year they have to do that. But no, nonetheless, that has to come up because if we all think back to our early careers in archaeology, when we were first in charge of recording our archaeological site, and by in charge, I just mean a crew chief, or maybe you're even put in charge of, you know, a set of features or something like that. But our skill levels have changed over the years. And I bet there isn't a single one of us that would go back if we could and, and, and re-record some of that stuff because mm -hmm. we know that the effort that we put in was probably not where it should be because we've right. learned so much over the years and you get better and better each year. And archaeology just doesn't have the time to train people to a, a level standard where everybody's good faith effort actually meets a legal standard that I think develops over years. And some people cross that line sooner than others. You know, I I think some really good points there. You know, as far as re-recording, I was just thinking myself, recording or wishing you could go back. I I, I think about this. You know, <laughs> I dream about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> wishing, especially when it comes back up and it ends up being a hot topic. That you know, all of a sudden that site gets a lot of attention. You're like, oh my dear God. <laughs> Did I please don't let anybody pull that report out? You know, just from when I was new. Not that I did anything on purpose, less than I should have, but I definitely have a lot sure. more information now. But you know, there this is it's been even with the COVID, it's been a conversation we've been having. I make a point, I I never go out and survey until I've done the record search, period. Until I've done all mm -hmm. the background and all the record search. To me, that's kind of a given. You need to know what his, you know, what else has been or who else has been out there, what has been found. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Not only is it more efficient, but it also allows you to, you know, have a context when you're going out there. Now, of course, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, reports that, that are less than stellar, but it's still good for you to understand what, what you're dealing with before you go out there. But now with this COVID, the, the record search, and we've talked about this in, in, a little bit in other podcasts is that um, now we're like eight weeks behind like in some of these Chris in California, at least some of the record or the information centers, it's, they have an eight week turnaround, 10 week turnaround before mm. you can get any results. Now, what are you supposed yeah. to do? Right. So, you know, I, I, but I do think in you know good practices to make sure that you're walking in with as much information as you could possibly have. And then I, I really like that Bill brought up talking to the people that the descendants, the the people whose this culture, uh, this site represents. And I think that's really, it is really important and it's, it's near and dear to my heart. In fact, I have a friend whose built environment is her specialty and they, they had a conference this year and they were, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how, how do we, uh, interpret the, especially in the built environment and what is important in the built environment that's still here that we want to preserve 
when we're not from that community, you know, it's it's difficult to to say for us to be making those decisions without incorporating that their narrative and their perspective. But the one thing that I've learned just through experience is that it's always important as an archaeologist to definitely avail yourself of all that. Um, we make a point of reaching out to the Native American community during our even our phase ones, our, our lower level initial surveys, that if if it's possible to have them actually on the survey with us and to involve them, you know, in that conversation even in the beginning stages. And that to me is part of the good faith effort. But there's also, when you get into the nitty gritty, you get, let's say a site that is really, you're you're right, it's the agency that needs to, you know, the government to government concept. Um, We are supposed to stand back as the consultant, even though we're still part of it, but we're supposed to stand back away from it. I think that it's important for us to remember that we are still coming from an archaeological perspective. What we consider archaeologically significant or archaeologically important is not the same thing that, uh, let's say, a tribe is going to consider archaeologically important or a built environment is considered important uh, to keep. And so I think we need to even though we need to respect their perspective, we also need to remember that we're coming from an archaeological perspective. Our job is not to say what's important and more of the esoteric um, idea, if that makes sense. It does indeed. And on that note, I think we're going to take our first break and be sure to check out, as I mentioned in the beginning, go check out arcpodnet.com and check out the members page to become a member and to continue this conversation with myself and our hosts and other members on our Slack team. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the Sierra Mark Podcast, episode 193. And Doug, we didn't hear from you last segment, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on this subject, especially since you were a... U.S. archaeologist for a while uh, down in New Mexico in the Southwest. And now you've been living and working over in the U.K. for a while. So how do you see this concept of good faith effort? So my experience with it has been at a very, a much more technical level and much mm-hmm. more detailed on sort of the logistics and the legality of it. So um, in a sense of in the United States, Almost, uh, I'm sure there's going to be exceptions to this, but most federal laws and regulations are a process-based situation in that you may not like the answer that comes at the end of the process, 
But as long as the process is followed, you can't really appeal it. And of course, mm-hmm. that's the great thing about the uh, the Trump administration is the vast majority of them are idiots and haven't been following <laughs> most of the regulations. And so, I mean, if they'd had halfway competent people, they probably would have rolled back all our ecological and cultural heritage laws by now, uh, because all you have to do is go through the process. And it's not about you know the the outcome it's it's just going through the process and so mm-hmm. the dealings with like you know best effort and um all that has come up quite a bit locally for where i was working in new mexico so there was a couple actually a bit before i started becoming an archaeologist um there's been a lot of fights with the local sort of uh pueblos local groups and you know, there's, we sort of touched on it, but the idea that, you know, they'll identify uh, religious areas and historical sites and things that are important to them, which may not necessarily be what archaeologists look for. And of course, that runs into problems because, uh, you know, it's not just necessarily, we're not always looking for 100% archaeological remains when we're doing our evaluations and everything. It's meant to be a bit more broad than that. And so, there's, uh, I remember before I started, uh, Sandia Pueblo, which is just outside of Albuquerque, got in a huge fight with the Forest Service because they basically passed along that there was religious sites in a certain area. But because the Forest Service couldn't identify them, they just said, oh, well, they, they don't exist. Um, and so the, <laughs> the good faith came into the process. And the process was... If someone had told you that they exist there, you need to go and investigate. Um, and so I remember they, they got overturned on this and I got pushed back because it was the good faith in the part that basically they didn't follow the process. So they should have been, the process should have been, someone's told you that something exists there. You need to go through the process of being able to pass that information on. And I think it came down to is they didn't pass on that information to the SHPO and the SHPO made a, a recommendation, but because they hadn't included the information, it got overturned. So it was all about the process. And that's 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 been my experience with sort of the good faith is it's it, it's mainly about the process. So as long as you're going through the process, you're pretty much in good legal standing um, for anything you do in terms of you know laws in the United States. And so that, that's basically been my experience um, is it's, Good faith is, it's mainly saying that you haven't done anything. I think Heather said it best at the beginning of the, uh, of our last segment about, you know, it's, you weren't doing anything shady. Um, you were basically going through the entire process and doing the best you can with the best intentions. And yeah, that's, that's basically been my experience with good faith is it's, <laughs> it's about the process. And whether you end up mm-hmm. with what you wanted at the end of that process doesn't matter too much as long as you're undertaking that process in the right way. So that, that goes back to like, yeah, what was it Trump? And they tried to, the citizenship question on the census. And they, they, they messed mm-hmm. it up because they, they could have normally have gotten that through, but they uh, didn't put their correct reasoning down and withheld information. And because they, that violated the process, they... They didn't get that into the censorship, but if they actually 
not been shady about it, they could have easily got that in because it's just the process. Yeah. So I've probably said process like 40 times in like the last <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> Which I think is that. appropriate. That's appropriate. That's a good focus. That's right. <laughs> um, to, to jump on, yeah. Uh, I, I think the important thing, though, is, is that, you know, what Doug's talking about, as, as Bill pointed out in the previous segment, um, it's there's this process, but the the process is heavily, well, it's, it's entirely um, the agency's process that um, section 106 and the whole the whole section 106 process and I'm just going to keep saying process that that's in it's addicting. Once, CFR you, once you start once you start Stephen <laughs> you, you can't stop trust hey, me hey, that's the name of my blog man I got to plug it even though I haven't <laughs> written anything in I don't know four years um, but yeah it, like it's it's like th- this whole this whole like 36 set. 36 CFR 800 process is oriented towards the agencies. And and so when it gets down to the actual, like, you know, us, those of us on the show, like, you know, we're, we're out there in the field, you know, putting, putting shovels in the ground and, and, you know, walking all over the place and looking for stuff. Um, like it doesn't immediately apply to what we're doing. Um, there, there are certain requirements in 36 CFR 800 that do, that do directly apply to us, but for the most part, it's on the agency and we are literally like a tick box in, in this list of things that they have to do and consider. Um, and, and part of that is the whole collaboration thing and, and, uh, consultation, which is conceived of as, you know, a government, you know, people talking to the government about like, here's, here's this undertaking and we have to do this. Um, and how that trickles down to, to us, the, the contractors, the consultants is not always well established. Depending on where you're working, the, the SHPO will have guidelines of how you are expected to apply what we do in the day to day to this, uh, overarching process. But, um, I, I think that in some time, at, at some points, um, particularly with certain agencies that are not really actively invested in, in doing this, so much as just passing the buck along to the um, to the the private developers, sometimes the guidance isn't where it should be. I I agree. I say I think that uh, when it comes to following the process, where things usually go sideways, to me. I've seen over over the years is is in the budget, so that's the almighty dollar. It does run our projects, and it does even for the best of archaeologists tempt. It's that little devil on the on one of our shoulders saying, "You don't have budget for this, and you only have <laughs> enough budget to have so many people out in the field." and And so I think that the the best way to make sure that you do. Uh, adhere to a good faith effort is that your proposal, your work plan is well thought out and your budget is well thought out. And, you know, I've had projects that I've bid on that um, have been, you know, where the process is considered and all the, the agency requirements are considered and been underbid by other people. And it's almost always, if I'm able to see their bid, sometimes you are, um, it's always been that, it was because they didn't follow the process and they were able to underbid because they were cutting out some of those steps. 
And so I do think that the key to having a good faith effort is is to make sure that your work plan and that your proposal is in line with that to begin with. Because when you get out there and now you don't have a budget, it's hard to explain to your company or to yourself if, if you're self-employed uh, that you have to eat some tasks because now you have to follow a process. And I, I know I even had to keep you know, I've picked up numerous projects where I've had to clean up the mess of somebody who did not plan for that process ahead of time. So that would be maybe something a little bit more uh, concrete is that the the um, the effort to make sure that you have a good faith effort starts with the proposal and your work plan. We're almost pushing into a sort of moral aspect of uh, of good faith. So the United States and several other countries are common law, and that's based off of precedent. Uh, and so that's that's you know what happened before. And so, unfortunately, when we come to like good faith effort, if something was subpar in the past, good faith uh, in the legal sense is subpar in the future and currently. So <laughs> if, if someone like if they're like, oh, they went out and they did, you know, yeah, I don't know how many linear miles of whatever um, survey, and they only found like five five sites, you know, I don't know five sites per like I don't know fifty miles or something, something pretty crappy. You know, there's going to be more sites than that, <laughs> but because it's happened once, if it, if it goes to the court system and it's like you know. They're like that, and they could hold it up, and they're gonna be like, "Well, look, we did that same sort of thing. Only found like five sites per, you know, fifty linear miles and stuff, which we probably know is they're just going too fast, and because someone had underbid and decided that you know you need to make ten hours every day hiking through rough terrain, so you're just blowing through a incredible pace, and there's no time to record anything, and you." You, you're going along, you're like, oh, guys, it's just that site is like just outside our, um, our project area. So we're, we're not going to record it. We're skipping through. Um, but in a sense, that is good faith because you're, you're meeting the very minimum requirements um, set out by precedent. And if the precedent is pretty poor, you're okay with that um, in the legal sense. Which is a shame because I wish we had a different sort of uh, legal aspect other than good faith. I don't know. And this is where we're talking about like sort of morals and uh, a higher standard in the sense of it'd be great if, if there's a legal way to say that you should always be aiming for the highest possible standard. And that means that mm-hmm. in the future – the standard will change and probably be harder or higher or I don't know, however you want to set, however you want to set your standards and that you should be aiming for that. I, I wish that was, was the case because I think legally it's all based on precedent. So as soon as someone gets away with being accepted as that is the bare minimum that you need to do to get the project done inside the process – then I think we're kind of stuck with that, which I think is a is a great shame because, yeah, if, if, if we could hold everyone to a, a higher standard and it would be legally enforceable. So 
in the sense of good faith, if we if we somehow change the meaning of good faith in relation to our heritage laws, and, and good faith meant like setting the highest standard possible as opposed to doing the, I'm not going to say the bare minimum, but it pretty much comes down to the bare minimum. <laughs> That's what I'd like to see. But, yeah. you know, I don't run the world, unfortunately. <laughs> what? Well, fortunately. Really? <laughs> oh, burn, Stephen, burn. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, to... To kind of go off that, I I, th- I feel like um, Doug's example of like, well, we only found five sites in so, so many areas. I, I don't think the results of findings um, is the precedent setting thing, uh, qu- quality. It's it. I think it's more in the process of what did you do to look for sites um, and, and start shovel testing on a certain interval and and yeah, if, if the shippo allows you to get away with doing a thirty meter interval of shovel tests when normally it's fifteen meters, then then that that could be an issue, right? Like unless it was like an extenuating circumstance, and, and it's it's actually kind of hashed out in pro in programmatic weed or whatever that that it's like okay, in, in this case because it's I don't know an environmental disaster, you get to do a wider wider spread or tailor it more towards the specific uh, APE rather than, um, you know, doing the default standard. However, Mm -hmm. that that doesn't really apply to, you know, like, well, you you only found one site versus, you know, like usually you would find 10 sites. And it's like, well, if you followed the procedure of what the standards are for field work and you only found one site, I mean, that's, that might be really weird but that wouldn't be precedent setting. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I should also say that I'm basing this off of, again, when I was very starting out, um, uh, there was a project that uh, was given to, uh, I think it was just an environmental firm with no archaeologists on it. And they were meant to do the archaeology survey. And I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like, they were supposed to survey like 800 acres or something like that. And they found nothing. And so then the the shippo went out there. I think within like five minutes, they'd found like a site in this area that's supposedly been uh, surveyed. So uh, it's this weird, like with archaeology, there's rarely anywhere in there to check. So, so part of it is comes down to your results because like, uh, I don't know, it, it's tough because you could say you did the process and yeah, that's true that like some areas will have a lot more sites than others. It's it's also one of those things where you, you could say you go through the process and you probably actually didn't know what you were doing and failed. And that could still, you, you could be brought up on probably good faith in that example because they didn't actually have a single archaeologist working on it um, when they should have. Uh, but that, that, so that was just the example that came to my head was cause that was the example of where they, they basically went back and they said, you guys, you didn't do a good job. You're not getting paid. And, uh, I think there was a whole bunch of legal action around it and stuff, but it was, it just basically came down to non-archaeologists went out to do an archaeology survey and didn't find anything. And so the implication is they did it wrong, mm-hmm. but I mean, since no one was there, no one actually knows. 
did they do it right or did they do it wrong? Um, which is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's it's like with most of our, our excavations and our surveys and stuff like that, we actually put a lot of faith in our fellow archaeologists that what they're finding, they say they're finding, and when they didn't yeah. find anything, that there wasn't actually anything there, which, yeah, yeah. Is, that's rough. That's that's a lot of faith we have in our in our fellow archaeologists. It is indeed. All right. And on that note, we will take our final break and come back on the other side. Hey, while you're listening to these advertisements and mostly promos that we have for the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network, if this is July 2020, just keep in mind that you can always contact our advertising manager, Madison, which is advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to get your job postings, advertisements, you know, field schools, whatever you want um, up here on the APN at a pretty reasonable price, but contact her advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com back in a second. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 193. And we are talking about several concepts. We've just spent the last two segments talking about what it means to make a good faith effort recording an archaeological site, highlighting the fact that it's a difficult concept to grasp, to be honest. And, you know, that needs to be really thought out and uh, and and analyzed. So, but now we're going to switch gears a little bit in segment three here and talk about something that really is tied to that, to be honest. And that is the concept of, is everything important? Some people want to go out there and record everything on an archaeology site. Some people don't, right? Some people want to sample. Some people don't like sampling strategies. They think it's just lazy. I think uh, I think personally that a lot of sampling strategies are based on uh, funding, not necessarily science in a lot of cases, which is, which is probably true because uh, a lot of our a lot of our practices in archaeology are based on funding, to be honest. But, you know, when you have the ability to do something like uh, I'll give you guys an example. Um, we recorded an archaeology site just a few weeks ago. It was a, a small lithic scatter. Well, not, not terribly small, but it was a small lithic scatter. And I the application that I was using to record and there's only two of us. So one of us was recording. We both flagged it out. One of us was recording the actual um, lithic debitage assemblage and one of us was re- and, and the tools actually. And then I was doing the, um, the site record and the GIS stuff, right. And taking the photos. Now here's something we mostly do. If you've got less than say 20, 30, 40 flakes or something on a site, then you're probably going to record all of them on paper, right? You're going to, you're not on paper in WildNote or in some other digital platform, but you're going to look at probably all those lithics and you're going to say, do I have a primary, secondary, tertiary? Don't get me started on how those are defined, but you're probably going to write down each one of those and give a little tick mark and say what you have next to that. But how many people go and actually take a GPS point on every single one of those? Probably not that many. And in fact, I know a lot of people who would take a GPS point on none of those except for the tools. And then you end up with this 200 meter by 200 meter kidney bean that has two points on it. You know, one of them's a tool and one of them's a datum and that's it. And there's no other data. And my guess is the reason for that is time. It usually is, you know, it's like somebody decided way back when that we're we're not going to put non-diagnostics on the GPS and, and map those. And that's it, right? So, 
but you know, I had the ability with the with the system I was using to actually record every point, and I had time because again, there was only two of us. So while my while my colleague was writing down everything else about analysis. I, I had finished the GIS, finished most of the site record, and I went around and I just dropped a point on every single lithic. And now we have a nice comprehensive map that shows everything that's on there. But but not everybody does that. And and that's not really the point of is everything important anyway, but it really did make me think about it. But what what is important to record? And and I'll just I'll just kick this kick this discussion off with current times here in July of 2020. There are a lot of things that are or were considered historical at some point that are now considered offensive and racist and they're being taken down and they're no longer important to us culturally. They're, they're important historically, but they're not important to us socially right now to, to keep in their current configuration, to keep in their current place and to keep in their current, I guess, place of uh, respect and honor, right? They're, they're still in the history books, but they're, they're coming down as something that is, you know, standing for everybody to see. So thinking about that, thinking about archaeological sites, thinking of your basic lithic scatter or can scatter or something like that, what is important? You know, what's important now may not be important in 50 years. What's important now may not have been important 50 years ago, right? So, so what's important now and how do we determine that? Who wants to jump into this soup next? Bill raised his hand That's first. Right. He wins the game. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll jump into <laughs> Oh, everybody, I beat them all to it. It's all right. Um, I mean, when it comes to CRM and, you know, uh, what we're doing out there, if you're, it depends on the regulatory context under which you're working, right? So if you have things that are 50 years old, intact, you know, uh, I can't, you know, we can go over this for a long time, whether five flakes and a ceramic of older than 50 years old within X amount of meters equals a site. I mean, I've, I've recorded a lot of that stuff in my life, but I recorded that stuff because of the regulatory context under which I was working. So if you're given a job and part of your job has a statue that's racist or whatever, and it's older than 50 years intact can convey its significance and all those other things. And as you know, plays a role in local history, then that thing should be recorded as a feature or as an object or, you know, however else you want to uh, argue it out in your um, site description or whatever. And after that, then it's up to the community to decide whether they're going to commemorate those things or not, because those battles continue going forever. Taking all of these statues down, a hundred and something years from now, we may actually, in fact, remember how we did something that we didn't think was a good idea and then want to create some kind of 3D model or memorial to the act of actually taking them down. <laughs> I mean, there's a million things that we could see yeah. happening. Uh, if you've ever been to many of the major European museums, you can see an entire wall from Babylon in the, um, mm -hmm. I can't remember, I think it's the Pergamon maybe I'm misspeaking, but in Berlin, I remember seeing, you know, huge sections of Assyrian artifacts and entire walls from uh, what's now Iraq that were taken away and are set up and are now the patrimony of another culture, another nation that at this time, it's been there for more than a hundred years. So it's actually, in fact, a historic object in that town that's been removed. And we have a, you know, long history of uh, empires and rulers and folks taking things from certain cultures, taking their cultural objects away and moving them to somewhere else. And then after 
time going on, those becoming a part of that culture's history. So if you just stick to the rules and you um, record things the way that it's spoken or, or outlined in what you're supposed to be doing for that project, then that's what you're doing. Because I can't tell you how many times my entire career in Arizona was based on people not caring about historic roads or railroads or not caring at all about historic uh, artifact scatters and stuff and just refusing to learn how to identify glass. By doing that, you know, I was given a job because I could actually record those things. Now, did I think a mound of 1,200 rusting cans in the middle of the desert was a, you know, beyond significant site? That was up to the land managing uh, uh, agency or the folks that were going to pay me to excavate each one of those cans stratigraphically to figure out, right? But my job as recording that stuff and making those uh, recommendations to our clients it was kind of outlined in uh, the regulations under which I was working and the stipulations of the contract. I concur totally. It is our first. And you know, every time I think of phase one, phase two, phase three, I have Tom King in my head. Don't use phases. You know, we're, we're looking at a step first. We're, we're, we're trying to see, do we have something here? Second is our evaluation of significance. And then what are we going to do from there? That's a real simple, you know, one, two, three, but, you know, the first thing that we do is we should be looking for artifacts and we should be recording, just like Bill says. We should be recording. We shouldn't be assigning importance to it. It's what happens later. Then that's when it gets a little sticky and we bring in stakeholders and we have a conversation of, you know, we obviously make our recommendations of significance, but there's a lot more people that are involved with that conversation. And the system is set up that way on purpose. So with that being said, the idea, the conversation of importance, I am a, a true believer that in the field, I'm not making that decision. In the field, I am just writing down what I find. And I I know that, you know, we are limited by budget, but that's where planning comes in. Um, there's no reason why you can't, you know, people can't devise systems. So I know we have our system, the company I work with, and I have my personal system with the, with the crews that I lead is that when we go out in the field, you can very efficiently record everything you see. There's no reason why you can't do that. And the only reason you wouldn't be able to do that is because you didn't prepare ahead of time and you don't have a, you, you don't have a, a good work plan. And also, and I know Chris would concur, is you have to have the proper technologies. Mm -hmm. And they don't all have to cost a lot yeah. of money. But if you have the proper technology, there's no reason why you can't record everything you see. And that's where, to me, the conversation of if something important or not doesn't come into play, in my mind, in the field. Uh, you record what you have. It's it's almost like you look at just the onset of of DNA analysis in the last 20 years and the things that have, you know, the crimes that have been able to be solved because people kept boxes of evidence. It, it always boggles my mind when I'm watching these crime stories. Who in the world would have thought to keep some of the things that they keep? But they did because even though they had no idea how it was going to be used, they knew that they should keep it and that they are not going to assign importance to it or whether or not it's, it's going to play a role in solving a crime. They are just collecting information so that the more specific conversation of importance has as much information as possible so it can be informed properly. To, to rift off of Heather, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. One thing that actually makes me very sad is what we don't record. So like 
the soil, unless you're doing an excavation, even then, you pretty much have to have like a geoarchaeologist there. Um, I can't remember this. This is maybe 10 years ago. I, I was reading someone who, so he's a bit, bi- they're a bit biased. They're geoarchaeologists, but they're like, yeah, in 30 years, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, man, they threw out all the soil. How could they have done that? Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that like we record because it's what we recorded 50 years ago, which is, you know, lithics, tin cans. Well, okay, maybe not. T- that's gotten a little bit more recent with uh, historical stuff. Um, <laughs> that's become more acceptable to record. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like, oh, man, early archaeology, like all the stuff that they did during the, uh, the Depression, you know, those, those big employment schemes and stuff how they had to excavate like an entire Pueblo, like a 150 room Pueblo in like a week or something. And they just tear through stuff and they only kept like the intact pots. And that was basically it. They, they, they pretty much just toss away everything else and they just keep like the sort of treasure hunting and important stuff. It's like a, Kidder, when he came out to Chaco Canyon, like all the stuff that got sent back to the Smithsonian in the, early, the late 1800s, early 1900s from the Southwest, it's they, they like amazing stuff. But you're just wondering like, God, how much did they just destroy? That like today we'd be like, oh my God, if we had that information, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish like when we were out recording, we'd also be like, Super annoying to everyone who's doing it, I know. But like, if you're doing like a shovel test pit and stuff, it'd be great if people like also like sampled the soil as well. Um, you know, because you know, taking back like mm-hmm. 50 pounds of soil is everyone's dream in your backpack. But um, <laughs> I I do think like uh, Heather was completely on the point. Like, you know, you just don't know what you're going to need. But even now, I. I you talk to a geoarchaeologist and they're like, oh, phytoliths and pollen and all sorts of things we can tell about the past from just the soil. And you're like, uh, we probably should be doing a lot more with like what we already have now, knowing what we know. Yeah. Well, and again, most of that, like I was saying in the beginning, comes down to budget, right? Like if we collected everything we possibly could off a site, I mean, who's going to store that? Who's going to pay for it? Um, I'm reminded of uh, of digs over in the, um, you know, like Greece and, and Italy and places like that up in that whole area. I've interviewed people before that have said, you know, we just got to chunk through, you know, five feet of Roman pottery that we literally throw in the trash before we can get to the prehistoric stuff. <laughs> because they're just like, this stuff is a dime a dozen. It's everywhere. You've got feet and feet and feet of Roman pottery to dig through. And, you know, if we had endless resources and endless ability to keep that stuff and then endless analytical abilities later on, we might find some analysis on the inside of a pot that, you know, some plant or something that was cultivated and and now we have evidence for it or, I don't know, some crazy thing. Again, how important is that? I don't know. It adds to the story, which is our job as archaeologists is basically to add to the story, add to the picture of history and... You know, it's it's what's important 
what's important right now? That's really what all this boils down to is that's what's important. It's what's important right now. What question am I trying to answer? And I think that's what gets us into trouble sometimes. Like both of you guys have said, I'm, I'm always reminded too of another Chaco Canyon story where they can't really do, um, uh, what was it? They can't really do uh, a carbon 14 analysis on some of the fire pits inside the Pueblo Benito uh, structure and some of the others, because when those early people visited there, the early Westerners, they built fires where they saw evidence of fires before. So they destroyed the carbon 14 potential of those particular hearths. And because obviously carbon 14 hadn't been invented yet and wouldn't be invented for like a hundred years. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to know. You know, this kind of leads to another concept that I think is is talked about a lot, and that is mm-hmm. preservation over excavation or excavation over preservation. So, you know, sure. when, when we are recording and let's say we're not doing testing and you're I know you were saying you're not crazy about the sampling and sometimes, but I think some, you know, we can't sample the whole thing. Also, sampling allows us to preserve. But you know, that's where we need to remember we're, we're coming across or we're coming against right now a, a curatorial problem right now where there's just not enough space. And now we're starting, at least in California, there's a conversation of not holding within certain universities any collections than it, with um, uh, of Native American artifacts. And so now, you know, we're getting to the point where we're not going to be. So we're collecting with the idea that we might have tech, might have, you know, technology in the future that can that can give us more information well maybe we need to really consider and we need to start considering not excavating and i know that's against what we what we think but it really shouldn't be excavating unless there's a need for an excavation because what we're doing is we're you know we we know we all what do they say we you know archaeologists kill their informants or something like that whatever but that is said when you're in <laughs> school but you know as soon as we dig it can't be dug again right so should we really should we always be digging should we always be you know sampling obviously we're we're looking at the impacts but if maybe we shouldn't be jumping to that right away maybe that should be a um you know look uh, obviously a case by case basis but based on the project if that project's not going to go through or if it has a potential that it might not go through should we be jumping to that excavation right away if it isn't absolutely necessary so I know that in consultations with Native American entities, they are now now wanting us to rebury, you know, rather than curate artifacts to actually rebury them. So now everything that we're collecting, we're not going to learn from anything anyway. So I do think that maybe in some ways we need to start looking at exactly when we excavate, we need to be looking at that more thoroughly now and not just jump to that. All right. Well, we are out of time. Stephen and Doug, do you have a quick final comment for this? Yeah. And Heather was kind of touching it on it at the end. And, and this might be a topic we want to kind of pursue in, for a later episode or something like that. But I, I think the big question is, do we need to come to grips with the idea that like we don't actually need to keep everything? Like we record it, we get rid mm-hmm. of it. And because it's not actually the stuff is not what's important. And and that's um, an avenue, like, I mean, there, there'll be a lot of hand-wringing about it, but th- that's something that we need to start considering. Right. So I'm going to jump in with my last quick in the last minute. <laughs> Just to say, like, maybe, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe we're looking at it as our resources being constrained 
but maybe we should be constraining development. So in the sense of maybe we should be saving every last thing, but that means that, you know, because of space and money and all that stuff, maybe we should be building a little less. Like, you know, if we're only mm-hmm. doing archaeology, if, if we have, if we decide to keep everything, so if archaeology is super important, maybe it's a sign that like, we don't need that like fourth hundredth millionth uh, pipeline, <laughs> um, especially as it's destroying the world with global warming. But I, I'm just wondering, like, if we completely twisted this around, just said like, yeah, actually, we should keep everything. And that's the constraint. And so the constraint is archaeology. So when people are thinking about like, ooh, we need to build this stuff. Ooh, you know, we're going to have to like really worry about the archaeology and we can't build too much because then we'll have too much archaeology and we don't have enough space and it's going to be really expensive. You know, just, I wonder if we were to switch it that way. Um, I'll, I'll leave it with that is like, it'd be really cool if like, instead of trying to sample, we actually do just save everything. It actually means that we put constraints <laughs> on other people and not ourselves. All right. That's a good point to end on. And we will do that. So check out our show notes. We've got a couple of links in there that we've mentioned. And again, extend the conversation. Keep having this. We could keep debating these topics for a while and you can do it on our members only Slack team. So head on over to arcpodnet.com for information on becoming a member for just the cost of uh, really less than your Netflix account. So that's it. You can get Disney Plus, watch Hamilton, and then go get an ArcPodNet membership and have a conversation about archaeology. <laughs> there you go. All right. Back next week with some more great topics. I don't know what they're going to be, but they'll be fantastic. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com dot com slash members get some swag and extra content while you're there send us show suggestions and interview suggestions we want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere and we want to know what you want to know about thanks to everyone for joining me this week thanks also to the listeners for tuning in and all but doug we'll see you in the field goodbye bye Bye. (laughs) goodbye (laughs) thanks for listening doug's already in the field (laughs) doug said goodbye at the exact same time yeah Yeah, i didn't even notice it I was was the first one there. I was the first one there. Uh, Sorry, listeners. I ruined it this time. (laughs) We're out. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.